We have spent the last few weeks, actually, last uh, yeah, almost two months, certainly the last 50 plus days, talking about Pentecost. And I think it's, it's so essential that we do. And it's so multi-layered, and it's so difficult for us to wrap our arms around. I wanted to see, take one more stab at it this morning and look at it from a different angle, because it, it is very difficult for us to completely comprehend the depth of what Pentecost means. When I was coming up in an evangelical church, it was all about speaking in tongues and prophetic gifts and that sort of thing. And, and you knew that you had broken through into baptism of the Spirit if you could do those things. And I could never do those things. So I was always a second-class citizen, it felt like to me. And I still can't do those things, but now I don't care. See, there's a, there's a change there. Because I know that those things don't matter. In terms of what we're talking about, they're beautiful expressions, absolutely beautiful expressions, and abandonment to, to Father and, um, and to the moment. But they're not essential to Pentecost. And so trying to get to the place where we understand what this is so that we can take concrete steps to get there. We've talked about it as being the second baptism because Jesus talks about it that way. And the second birth, baptism in fire, second birth in spirit, rebirth in spirit, being born again, all these things. But it's so abstract, it is difficult for us to understand what those things mean. We talked about last week the ability to actually merge heaven and earth. Well, that makes it clearer, doesn't it? Yeah. In terms of being able to see the oneness of everything, the unity of everything, behind the diversity and the individual form and function that we see every day in, in life. We talked about being able to see with the Father's eyes, the Father who sees that unity as the central fact, the absolute basis of all creation, and yet still in the midst of this diversity. But even all of those images still leave us without a real concrete way forward to figure out what is it that we do? How do we see both at the same time? How do we see an overlay of unity on top of the diversity and the crazy dysfunction that we see in our lives around us, you know, personally and collectively and all that? How do we do that? How can we make it more concrete? Last week, we talked about going to the Brother, Lou, Brother Lawrence, Brother Lewis, would be like Jerry Lewis, the Brother Lawrence School, to being able to see God in every, every one of the tiniest details, to not make distinctions between what we assume is significant and what is not significant, <clears throat> but just showing up to be present to everything and find God's presence in everything. We talked about Jesus telling us to look at himself as the way, what this way looks like, the shape of the way. We always talk about the descent before the ascent. We talk about the emptying before the filling. Jesus shows us this way. He lived this way. He says, look at love as a basis. You are my followers if you are loving, and really for no other reason. Not about the other litmus tests that we conjure up about doctrine or theology. It's about love, he said. They will know that you're my follower. He said, look at each other. If you can't love each other, how in the world do you think that you're loving God? If you can't see unity and oneness in each other, how do you think it's going to happen spiritually? He said, look at nature. Look at the way nature works. Look at the harmony. Look at the interconnectedness. Don't imagine that you're apart from that. See how you fit in. See how that connection also overlays unity on top of diversity. He said, look at the moment. Be present to each moment. 
to see the Spirit's presence in each moment. These are concrete things that we can do. They kind of come at it a little bit indirectly, sideways, but it's in a gathering of experience of oneness, if we are tuned into that oneness, that is going to take us down the road. And I suppose when you're dealing with spirit, there isn't anything that you can grab onto. It's not a quadratic equation. Where'd that come from? It's not math. It's not something that you can just add up and get there. We wish it were, because then we could control it better. But it's out of control. So gathering the experience is what Jesus is after here. Today, I want to look at it from the point of view of what is the main block What's our blockage? What's our limit? How do we limit ourselves in terms of being able to experience the Pentecost moment, to breaking through, to really being able to bring the unity of heaven down to earth? Now, have you ever heard of legalism? Of course you've heard of legalism. But do we really know what it means? Because it's a lot bigger than what we typically think it means. Now, the best definition I've heard in terms of the way we're using this word is that legalism is the belief that the law can save. That obedience to the law is what makes us acceptable to God, which gains God approval. So it's performance-based. That is the best definition of legalism as the way that we're looking at it. So that definition is one that very few of us would use in really any church because we're going to say that we're saved by grace, and we're going to go to Ephesians 2, and we're going to believe that. So we don't say that we're legalists. In fact, we would bristle at the idea that we're legalists. Now, interestingly, the Pharisees made no bones about it. (laughs) They were legalists to the point of absurdity, and that's exactly what they said. It is the following of the law to the nth degree, and that's something that Jesus was always coming against, and we're going to take a look at that. Because in that conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, between two different worldviews, two different ways of seeing life, that's the instruction point for us. Why are those controversies, especially the Sabbath controversies, preserved for us in the New Testament? Because they are the point of instruction. It's what Jesus was using to try to break his people through to a new way of understanding all this. So we don't speak about legalism. We speak about Saved through grace. We talk about all of the ways that God's love and grace save us, about how the saving effect of Jesus' action on the cross saves us. But at the same time, if you really get to the bottom line, it's still about the contract, isn't it? Because no matter how much God's love saves us, don't we still have to perform? Don't we still have to do the right things? And if we're not doing the right things, then how do we really know we're saved? See, this is the logic. This is the way that the church gives with one hand and takes away with the other. You're backsliding. Well, were you really saved before? Maybe you really weren't saved because now you're doing this. How could you be doing this if you weren't saved? This is the kind of mental schizophrenia that we go through, or I should say the religious schizophrenia that we go through, because what it really comes down to is we are still expected to perform under the law, perform under the contract. Why do we keep coming back to this as a church and as a people? Why is it so hard for us to understand that God is coming from a different place and to hold that place once we understand it? Why do we keep coming back to law and obedience as the be-all and end-all of what we're doing here. I think the main reason is, 
is that the physical world is based on it, isn't it? I mean, think about it. It's pretty much all we know as we go through life. The world is performance-based. And from earliest childhood, we find out what we do that gets us kudos and gets us love and acceptance and the things that we do that get spankings and get us sent to bed without supper. We know these things. We know that we are performance-based. And that only gets strengthened as we get to school. And that only gets strengthened as we go to our jobs. And it only gets strengthened as we enter our marriages and as we raise our children. And as we look at our government and we look at the laws, everything is based in performance. Everything is based against some sort of legal standard, whether it's just a family's in-home culture or whether it's actually the millions upon millions of lines of legal code in this country or whether it's just the overarching morality that we believe or have been taught. We are performance-based in this life, in every aspect of our life. We have learned that there is no free lunch You have to work in order to eat. That says right in the Bible, it's there. Paul says it. You want to eat, you got to work. Good reason for that, too, by the way. It's a quid pro quo type of existence. Something for something. Always something for something. Grace doesn't count in the world, does it? It's always quid pro quo. There are expectations in business. There are expectations in law, in marriages, in relationships. Even the animal kingdom is based in performance, isn't it? The circle of life. Those who are more efficient at finding their food are going to survive. And that's what it comes down to. The efficiency, our ability to be able to perform. Legalism is the basis of the physical world. Performance is the basis of the physical world. Performance, competition, and survival. And we have learned that very, very well. It is so difficult for us to run against that stream, that current, and try to overlay something that is so different. Now, I've painted a pretty bleak picture here, but obviously there's the love of the individuals that can override that, right? The love of individuals, the love of a mother for her children, the love of each other in, in, in close relationships. And there's also our social safety net. You know, such as it is, it's gotten better over the years, that is also trying to run against that to allow people who don't have the ability to perform right now in their lives, the ability to survive long enough so hopefully that they can. So we do have some things running in the other direction, but that doesn't negate the fact that this is all about performance. Now, Pentecost is the ability to see the world, see our lives, every bit of it, overlaid with a different system that operates on completely different principles, operates on the principle of oneness, that everything is already one and connected, that there is a love that is completely indiscriminate. It just is washed on everybody. As Jesus said, the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous, the sun rises and set, the rain falls on everybody. God's love is used as the metaphor for that, or that is used as a metaphor for God's love because it's the same way. It's indiscriminate. It's unjust, if you want to take a look at it that way. And it's completely unconditional. This is the system that is overlaid on top of the one that we already know. So at Pentecost, we realize that we are living between those two systems and they need to be synthesized. There's never a time, as long as we're drawing breath, that we can leave the physical system. 
the performance-based system, that's just life. But at the same time, if we know that there is this other unseen system, this unseen love that undergirds this, that is the basic reality of life, then that allows us to perform better. It allows us to trust rather than perform with fear, with a sense of unworthiness, never knowing if we're doing well enough. We can turn that around even as we still work hard, even as we still strive for perfection or anything else that we're doing. Strive for excellence at least. Pentecost is this ability to see the world overlaid. Pentecost is the graduation from obedience to law as the defining factor of our lives. That is huge. Pentecost is the graduation from obedience as being the defining way that we look at our relationship with God, with unseen God, with ultimate reality, however you want to look at that. It's also the graduation from this physical mindset, this physical and legal mindset that is so all-encompassing, so pervasive in our lives. Pentecost is the exposing of the illusion that we can somehow build this tower of obedience to heaven and under our own steam get ourselves to heaven. You remember what happened to the Tower of Babel, right? didn't go so well for them. They were trying to build a tower to heaven, and this is where God came in and confused the languages and the tower fell. Metaphorically, that's what we're doing. Pentecost is the exposing of that illusion that we can do this. More importantly, it's the exposing of the illusion that we can somehow stay in control. We can somehow stay in control and be on Jesus' way at the same time. That we can somehow eliminate all the risk of life, somehow earn our way along Jesus' way. Somehow we can have our cake and eat it too. It's basically what we're looking for. That we can never experience vulnerability. That we can never experience uncertainty. That we can have also at the same time the exhilaration and the freedom of spirit as we understand it, as we hope we understand it. How can we do those two things at once? Truth is, we can't. Because the freedom and exhilaration that we're looking for can only be experienced in vulnerability and uncertainty. Think about the peak moments in your life. Think about the most exhilarating moments in your life. Were you in control? Did you have it all planned out? Did you have it all mapped and ready? See, this is the thing that we need to understand. When you fell in love, when you fall in love, are you in control? See, it's the out-of-controlness that is exhilarating. It's the out-of-controlness of realizing that we don't know where we end and the other begins. All of that mystical experience that we can't control and can't even define, we don't know how it happens. That's why they call it falling in love. That's exhilarating. That's freeing. But it's not being in control. Extreme sports, those of you who love extreme sports, what do you love about it? The uncertainty of it all, isn't it? You don't really know how this thing is going to come out when you go to those speeds or go to those heights or put yourself in harm's way. That's the exhilaration. It's also the freedom of it. People say they feel alive when they do those sorts of things. How about exploring and pioneering? 
to go out into uncharted waters that have never been gone before. That's getting hard to do on this planet. But still, to go beyond the map, to go beyond the itinerary, to go out there someplace with the ability to get lost, with the ability maybe to get hurt, with no 911 that you can call, that's the freedom that we're talking about, the exhilaration. But it's also the out-of-controlness at the same time. Legalism is the opposite of all of that. Keeping the status quo in place, managing risk, that's what legalism is about. That's what obedience is about. That's what having all these standards is about. And it kills the ability to have exactly what we're after. Remember we talked about the prodigal son and his elder brother. Two opposite ends of the same thing. What does the elder brother represent? He represents the legal approach, doesn't he? He stayed. He was obedient to his father. He did exactly what he was supposed to do all those years that his younger son was, his younger brother was gone. Managing risk, status quo, keeping it all in place. The younger brother is the exact opposite. He's throwing everything to the wind. He's just going for it. And of course, he loses it all, but he comes back. We talked about the fact that both of those, it's not an either or. It's always been painted that the prodigal was somehow worse than the elder. The elder was better because he was loyal, but he had his problems too. But the truth, truth is we need them both. They are both us. And if we don't have both of those in balance, we can't understand what Pentecost is all about. We're going to need to somehow balance this. But law and obedience by itself is only going to keep us imprisoned in our own minds, in our own set behavior patterns, never being able to experience anything beyond what we can imagine, what we imagine we can control. And at the same time, as long as we're in that mindset, nothing really exists outside of ourselves or our performance, our duty, our righteousness. Now, the Pharisees are kind of a caricature of this idea of legalism. They took it to the place of absurdity. And Jesus' conflict with them, as I said, is this point of instruction. And I want to take a look at just a few areas and see if we can start to understand what's going on here and why Jesus is making these points so strongly. Take a look at Matthew 5.20. Now, you all know that 1 John 4.19 has become our kind of our signature verse here. You know, We love because God loved for, first loved us. Matthew 5.20 was our signature verse for the, maybe the first, I don't know, eight or nine years because it is so central but then I figured probably it would be nice if he had something a little more positive than Matthew 5.20. But it was so important. Take a look at this. Jesus says, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, on the face of it, for those who are first hearing this, it would have just spun their head around. How in the world can you surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? These men had brought legalism to an absurd art form. I mean, the lengths that they went to create absolutely structured system, not only of written laws, but of verbal laws, oral laws, so that you could 
know exactly what you are doing at every single moment and never be in danger of breaking a written law. They created hedges or fences, they called them, around each of the 613 laws that they understood, that they interpreted from the Old Testament. And they created literally hundreds if not thousands of more oral laws around those laws so that you would have to break all of those or bust through all those fences before you actually broke a written law. But the overall system was so overwhelming, no one could understand it, of course, which was the source of the Pharisees' power with the people because they had to go to the lawyers, the Pharisees, to find out whether they could do this or that. How in the world do you surpass that would be the first thing that would fall into the mind of someone who's hearing Jesus' line here. Now, obviously, what Jesus is talking about is surpassing their righteousness, not in terms of degree, but in terms of quality. A few weeks ago, we talked about kiva and kavana, which are two Hebrew words that have to do with the quality of prayer. Kiva being the structure, the, the ritual, the standards of prayer. This would be along the lines of what the Pharisees are representing. Kavana was the heart that we bring to it. And you can't have one without the other. If a prayer is merely ritual, then like Paul says, you're just a clanging gong or a noisy cymbal. If your prayer is all just heart and inspiration, then you have no structure, and it's not going to be regular. It's not going to be something that you're doing every day and showing up every day for. We need them both. So it's not that the Pharisees were wrong. It's the Pharisees had become so wildly unbalanced that they were putting all these burdens on the people and now using that as a source of power. And this Jesus was not going to abide. So he's trying to let the people know there's a different way of approaching righteousness. There is a balance that must be struck. And the Sabbath controversies are the ones that really bring it to a head, and there's so many of them in the Gospels. You can read through them, but here's one of them at Mark 2, starting at verse 23. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need? And he and his companions became hungry, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Okay, what's going on here? First of all, it's obviously it's a Sabbath. So between sundown on Friday and sundown on Saturday is the Sabbath, 24 hours. On the Sabbath, you're not supposed to do any work. So if you go to Exodus, it'll say there's, you know, right in the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath is the Lord's Day. You have six days to work, but on the seventh, you do no work. That's basically all it says, and rest. Then if you go someplace else in Exodus, it'll say the same thing, and it said, and you will kindle no fire in your homes. Okay, so we now we're not supposed to do any work, and we know we're not supposed to kindle any fires. Do you know that there are Jews today that have motion detectors on all their light switches? So on the Sabbath, they don't have to flip on a light because that would be kindling a fire in their understanding, and they're not going to do that. That's really all we know about what you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. Servile work? No. Kindle a fire? No. What the Pharisees did was answer all the unanswered questions. Well, what does that exactly mean? 
You know, can I walk from one end of the house to the other? Can I carry a book? Um, can I pull my mule out of a hole? Can I heal my son who fell and broke his arm? Well, what, what, I can, what can I do? What can't I do? And so what they came up with was dozens upon dozens of oral tradition laws to wrap around that one law that says no work and no kindling of a fire and included so many things that basically you couldn't do anything. Now the Sabbath, the intent of the Sabbath was to give rest to give refreshment at the end of the week. All it was doing was creating pressure because of all the things that you couldn't do that you might need to do. You know, even if you, your kid broke an arm, you know what the Pharisees would say? They said, well, you can wrap it in, cold wa- in, in a cloth with cold water, and if it heals, it heals. But you can't set it. You know, what kind of craziness is that? You as mothers, you as fathers, How restful would your Sabbath be if that's what you were doing? It's waiting for sundown so you could set your son's arm. I mean, it's crazy making. And so Jesus is trying to say, come on, this can't be possible. Now, they're walking through the, the, the fields and they're picking heads off the grain. That was absolutely allowed. In Deuteronomy, it's allowed. You can go into your neighbor's standing grain and you can pick heads off and eat if you're hungry. But you can't take a sickle in and actually harvest the crop, right? So it was limiting the amount of damage, but it was also creating a safety net of sorts so that people wouldn't starve. They were doing something that was completely legal, but the Pharisees say not on the Sabbath. Because in order to eat grain that you pick off of a plant and standing grain, you have to rub it to get the chaff off the kernel so that you can eat the kernel. And that is what they called winnowing. Winnowing was not allowed on the Sabbath. It's not in the law. It's not in the book. It's in their oral traditions. And yet Jesus is saying, but look what David did. He actually went into the temple when he was starving, when he was on the run, and ate the showbread that was reserved for only the priest. Not only did he eat it, but he gave it to his men. And that was blessed by God in the Old Testament. And you're saying that my followers, my friends here, can't do this? What's going on with you people? Don't you understand? The Sabbath was made for us. The law was made for us to refresh us, to keep us balanced week by week. Not us for the law, not us for the Sabbath. You see the point that he's trying to make? He's trying to get them to graduate from this just baseline thinking that all we need to do is follow, 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 and not break, not break, and just... Grind it out, and somehow that's going to make us acceptable to God. Yet Mark 7, starting at verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Another way of saying the oral tradition. You're not going to find it written in the book. But eat their bread with impure hands. Okay, there was, there was uh, elaborate rituals and, and purifi- purification rituals that the Jews would go through, and they would wash their hands and wash everything before they ate. And the uh, Jesus' disciples are not doing this. They're on the road, and they're doing what they do. And uh, they're just, you know, coarse fishermen anyway. They're not you know, going by the niceties of all of this. Jesus turns to them, and then I'm going to skip ahead to verse 14, but the part that I'm skipping is all this about korban. And the idea here is, is that even though the Pharisees are going to judge Jesus on not, and his followers on not washing their hands, they use the law to be able to not support their parents in their old age by using this idea of korban, which was a dedication of some uh, material possession to God. 
And by dedicating that, they said, well, now I don't have anything for my parents. But they're breaking another law that says you honor your father and your mother. So they would play with the law to their own advantage. And then we'll turn around and stick it to other people as they're doing here. So at verse 14, Jesus says, he calls the crowd to himself again. And he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thus, he declared all foods clean. Do you know what kind of fighting words those are to a Jew? No kosher? Are you kidding me? And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. Perfect common sense, we would say. But in a culture like that, this is mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. And even though we would say it's common sense, How many hidden things in terms of legalistic ideas do we carry around that we don't even realize are in operation in our lives that defy common sense, the simple common sense that Jesus is showing here? Why is Jesus so adamant? Why is he making such a big point about all of this? Because he knows that the end result of legalism is entitlement, not gratitude. You're not going to get to gratitude if you're operating a performance-based system. You will get to entitlement, though. If you do well, if you perform well, then you are entitled to everything that you get. And you will look at everyone else, if they haven't done well, as not being entitled to what you have. Entitlement, self-righteousness are the end result of a performance-based system. Or on the other side, if you haven't performed well, then abject unworthiness and even despair that you cannot be good enough. You will never be good enough, so why even bother trying? Jesus knows that's the end result of this unbalanced system. And we become immersed, we become become blinded by the system of the physical world so that we can't even see or imagine that there is such a thing as the indiscriminate love of the Father. It's all about fear. It's all about minimizing the risk that we feel because of the fear. It's all about wondering if we're worthy enough, and there's no place for compassion. There's no place for this indiscriminate love if we're living in fear. Now, Jesus' followers before Pentecost were still stuck in this physical mindset. They hadn't traveled very far. It's amazing. As long as they were living with Jesus, they didn't travel that far. They were still jockeying for positions of power. They were still imagining that his kingdom was all about physical power. And they were seeing themselves on the right side, backing the right horse in many ways. Not that they didn't love Jesus, but they were still stuck in this mindset. This was their glass ceiling. This was the brick wall that they could not pass through. Still stuck under these limitations and these fears. And Jesus is trying to crack them open. Get them to see something else. And before he could crack them open, he first had to crack open their set beliefs, the system that they were under, the system that had them so under the wraps. He had to expose the illusion, the absurdity of these legal teachings 
Try to get that across to them. That's what all of these controversies are about. Jesus speaking truth to power, but for a purpose, not just to stir the pot. He was a loyal Jew. He never stopped being a loyal Jew. He didn't break the written laws, but he realized that the oral traditions were, were just ridiculous, and he wasn't going to obey those, and he was going to, at every point, try to draw the lines of different. He was trying to get everyone to understand that you can't get to Pentecost through obedience. Trying to get to Pentecost through obedience is like trying to win the Indianapolis 500 in a pinto. Okay, now you probably don't even know what a pinto is, do you? You see, she's too young. She doesn't know what a pinto is. Okay, how about this? It's like trying to win the Indianapolis 500 in a Volkswagen Beetle. Do you know what that is? She doesn't even know that? Okay. (laughs) It's like trying to win the Indianapolis in a horse and buggy. All right. Yeah, you got, I got to get the, uh, the illusions here down to where everyone is uh, getting too old for this, I guess, is what it's coming down to. Trying to get to Pentecost through obedience is like bringing a knife to a gunfight, like trying to empty the ocean with a teaspoon or pushing it back with a broom. It's like trying to get in orbit in an airplane. You can't do it. It's the wrong vehicle. It won't happen. No matter how hard we push, no matter how fast our obedience car is, it can't do it. It simply can't. An airplane needs lift that it gets from the air to get into orbit. You get high enough, there's no air. The airplane is going to sink back down. It cannot fly into space. You need a rocket with escape velocity. You want to get into space, you get out of the plane and into the rocket. You want to get to Pentecost, you get out of obedience and you get into what? That's the question, isn't it? The $64,000 question. Physical and spiritual are of a completely different order, a completely different class, completely different substance. You just can't go fast enough in a physical vehicle far enough to get where we want to go. If we can let go entirely, at least momentarily, of the physical vehicle, we can make this quantum leap into what's going to feel at first like nothing. It's going to feel at first like the unknown and the uncertainty, and we're not going to like it. It's so difficult to try to describe this transition to someone who hasn't experienced it. And you see all the work that Jesus is doing and all the words and imagery he's throwing at it to try to get this across. But the classic one, of course, is John 3. And let's take a look at that. I know we've used this a lot, but maybe in this context it's going to look a little different to you. I hope so. John 3, starting at verse 3, this is Jesus with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is one of the Sanhedrins, one of the rulers of, of Judea. He's also a Pharisee, very important person, comes to Jesus by night, covered over in his talit, makes sure nobody can see him, but he has these questions. Something's burning. He knows something's going on here, but he can't figure it out because he's still in the physical mindset. He's still in the pinto, right? He can't understand why he can't get where Jesus is because he sees something there that means something. And he asked Jesus about this. I know that you come from God. No one could do what you're doing if you don't come from God. How is this happening? How is this possible? And Jesus answers and says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says to him, 
<laughs> How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Perfect physical, logical thinking, right? And yet it sounds so absurd to us because we know that Jesus is speaking metaphorically. He can't see that. The fact that we can see it, we think we're more evolved, but I'm telling you what, we are just as absurd in other areas of our lives that still are untouched by this transformation that Jesus is trying to get down into our, the roots of our soul. We don't see what we don't see. We don't know what we don't know. Nicodemus is speaking this. Nicodemus is speaking this right now. But Jesus answers him and says again, Truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Right? That's the pinto. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And you know what? That's about the best that you can do. Being born again is like the wind. You can't see it. Don't know where it's coming from. Don't know where it's going to. You hear the sound of it. You see the effect of it. Are you willing to just flow with it? Get out of the vehicle you're in and flow in that unknown direction. Be uncertain for a while. The fact is that living in the Spirit is living in uncertainty, but you eventually come to a place of trust. And when you come to trust, the uncertainty doesn't matter anymore. If you have trust, this is where Jesus is trying to get us to come. This is a classic clash of a spherical and a physical encounter. How are we going to envision this for ourselves? How can we envision what it may be like for us to make this transition, make this move? When I was going through this 25 years ago, and I was being told all these things about being baptized in the Spirit and being born again and, and the, what it looked like and the criteria, and of course it all came down to charismatic gifts pretty much, I didn't get it. It didn't compute. It made me crazy. It made me working hard, make me work harder, like banging my head against the wall and getting absolutely nowhere. And finally, I got to a point where I realized that everything that I had done my entire life to get something that I really wanted was to lean forward, plan, work like heck, grab it by the throat, and make it mine, acquire it. But this thing that I was approaching now was nothing like that. And in, in repeated experience, I realized what it's really like, it's like a pushing off and letting go. It's like when you were a kid and stood backward on the edge of the pool and just fell in and let the water slap on your back. It felt more like that. It was this letting go and falling back as if hopefully someone was going to catch me. Meister Eckhart, the medieval mystic, captures it perfectly when he says, the spiritual life is more about subtraction than addition. Again, not about acquiring something, adding it to you, but letting go, letting go of things. Of course, I can always come back to my skydiving example, right? To be holding on to the edge of that open hole two miles above the ground and then to finally let go. 
to find to hold as long as I'm holding on, I've got control. As long as I'm holding on, I can make a choice. As long as I'm holding on, I'm scared to my toes. But to push off and let go and get past that first hyperventilating breaths and then realize, hey, this thing is in motion now. It's going to end at the ground one way or another. I can enjoy the ride or I can be scared all the way down. What do I want to do? It's so wonderful to just push off and let go and realize you're going someplace. This might sound like a weird one, but uh, how many of you have been on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland? I mean, probably all of us, right? There's that first part where you're going real slow through the swamp and the bayou and the music is very subdued and it's very dark. Well, fireflies out in the distance. And you can feel the boat being pulled along by that tether, that track in the water someplace. And you're going along. It's very measured and very controlled. And then you get to that tunnel. And when you go through the tunnel, you know, there's this free fall that you go into. And when you hit the water again, you're bouncing and bobbing and you just feel free in the water. And the music is up. Yo-ho, yo-ho. And there's expansive space around you. It's that feeling going from the tether and the pulling of the boat to that just freedom that opens up. I know this is probably really lame, but I don't know. It's, it's something that came to me because I always felt that way. Suddenly there's change, complete change in mood, complete change in everything. And you just feel this freedom, this openness. Have you ever tried not to fall in love? Ah, this is not the person that I should be falling for, but then you do. Yeah, I see a few heads going up and down. As long as you don't fall in love, you got some control. As long as you don't fall in love, you got some, you know, a plan here. You're safe. You're not vulnerable. And then something changes, and it's just all over. And your heart's out a mile, and you know, I'm probably going to get hurt. But at the same time, doesn't it feel great? <laughs> I mean, just that freedom of not knowing, that freedom of not being in control. This is the change. This is the difference. Have you ever just struggled by le with learning a skill or learning a concept. Maybe it was math, and you're trying to get it down, trying to get it down, but it eludes you. And maybe you can somehow work out the problems, but you really don't understand exactly how you did it. Someone tells you to show your work, and you panic because you don't exactly know how you got the right answer. I remember when I was trying to figure out electrical wiring, and we, were, we had recording studios, and we were rewiring things, and I really didn't understand what was happening. I was told what to do, and obediently, I could do it. I could solder this and solder this, and it would work. Amazing. I didn't know exactly how because I didn't really understand the way. And then all of a sudden, one day, just like that, it's like, oh, that's what it is? I get that. I can do this all day long now. It's just, it's just every, something flips. But it's like that. It can be that with math. It can be that with learning a new language, with learning sports, with learning music. It can even be learning knitting. You know, you just get it. And all of a sudden, it's yours in a different way. James calls this the law of liberty, which always sounded like an oxymoron to me. But it's the moment when you're not following the law anymore. You're not obeying anything anymore. You have changed internally so that your deepest desire, pleasure, delight, and purpose looks like law. You're not working at it anymore. You're doing what you want to do. It's a liberty to follow the law of love, which is going to look like the written law in most aspects. This is the change. It's no longer a grind. It's no longer about restriction, obedience, duty, 
None of those things. It's now just the greatest pleasure of your life to free, to be free, to be who you really are, which is simply a decent person. I love Viktor Frankl. He said there's only two races of mankind, the decent and the indecent. Everything else doesn't really matter. Either you're decent or you're indecent. We were born decent. We were born good. Things happen to us that make us indecent, make us dysfunctional, obsessive, compulsive, and all the things that we are. But to make this transformation is to remember, to unforget who we really are as simply a decent person, to return to our original state, which is a definition for forgiveness, connected, one, but now aware that we are, not like we were when we were children. We can literally see a new spiritual world through the cracks in the physical world that have been created. Jesus' way is always the descent first, the subtraction first, the undermining of the hold that the physical world has on us. That's why we do these things. We don't take the descent just because we want to suffer. It's the questioning of everything that we do as we move through that phase of our spiritual formation that allows the cracks to start to form, to give ourselves permission to be heretical for crying out loud. You know, if you, if you can't do that, if you can't give yourself permission to be heretical in someone's eyes, you can never follow the way of Jesus. You can never take this journey to be willing to sell everything that you think you know and have and everything that you've been using for your survival and for your happiness to just follow something new? Can we do that? And even if we say yes, it's not going to happen all at once. It's not the way this works. It's literally peeling of an onion. It's always going to feel like two steps forward and a step back. Always this give and take as we're trying. Why is that, do you suppose? Why is it so difficult? Someone wrote here... I, th- I think that's a, a pretty good take on why it works that way. Ilya Delio, who is a Franciscan nun, writes, God is doing new things, but only those with new minds and hearts can see a new world breaking through the cracks of the old. And there's an Episcopal priest named of Stephanie Spellers, and she sees the current challenges of our church and society as a way of God cracking open people for greater possibility. And she writes this, Institutions and cultures and people are durable partly because they obey the law of inertia. Remember what inertia is, you science nerds? You know, an object in motion will stay in motion until something moves it. An object at rest will stay at rest until something moves it. And so it's one of the the laws of of mechanics. And, And so there's something built into the movement of something or the stability of something, and it takes a large outside force to change that. Even if you think you've exerted a strong external push and knocked a moving object or an entire institution off its set course, wait, just wait. With barely a nudge, the object will drift right back to its original path. Think of your own experience. When you see a crack, what's your first instinct? push the pieces back together and patch it over. Eventually, a contractor comes with the bad news. There is deep enough damage here, and if you don't address it before long, the whole structure will be fundamentally compromised. You sigh and you negotiate. I don't know about you, but I have a surprising capacity to delude myself about how broken the structure is. With enough duct tape and rope, I will get back to normal. 
I call this rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Or we could acknowledge the unraveling, breaking, and cracking as a bearer of truth and even a gift. Perhaps, as Alan Roxburg suggested, the Holy Spirit has been nudging and calling us to embrace a new imagination. But the other one had to unravel for us to see it for what it was. In this sense, the malaise of our churches has been the work of God. A church or a person who has been humbled by disruption and decline may be less arrogant and presumptuous, may have fewer illusions about their own power and centrality, may become curious, may be less willing to ally with the empires and powers that have long defined the way it has always been, may finally admit how much we need the true power and wisdom of the Holy Spirit. See, that's it. Life will systematically dismantle our illusions of power and control. It will tear down our personal and collective towers of Babel every time. They won't stand. And really, that's why many of you are here right now at this place, right? Because you saw cracks in the old system, the old churches, the the, the paradigms and the belief systems that you were in before, and you were looking for something new. You knew that you had to go to something new. You weren't willing to keep pushing it back together and duct-taping it together anymore. You probably did that many times before you finally decided, I've got to go someplace else. I've got to do something new. And so the question is, when this happens again, and it will, it has to, this is life. Endless cycles of seeing new cracks in your existing thinking that will show you a new vision of a new world. And when that happens, what are you going to do the next time? Do you have the energy? Do you have the desire to keep moving through these cycles? Or are you going to freak out and hysterically try to put it all back together again? If you can see it as a gift, if you can see it as a crack through which we can see a new world, (coughs) or can we grab a sledgehammer and help it along? Continue with the demo. Take it down. I mean, at the point, I'm at the point right now where if something's breakable, I want to break it now. I don't want to hold it together with chewing gum and duct tape for another few years. Let's break it now. Let's see it as breakable. Let's see what the next thing is, the thing that really has legs and can stand the test of the rough and tumble of our lives. It's up to us. <coughs> we must begin with obedience. But when that vehicle cracks up, the obedience vehicle, the Pinto, Are we willing to get in a different vehicle, an unknown, untested, and risky vehicle? That's the Pentecost moment, seeing a new vehicle through the cracks of the old and actually getting in just in time. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, thank you for the cracks in the vehicle. Thank you for showing us the deficiencies in our thinking, in our worldview, so that we can begin to have the curiosity to imagine that there's something else out there that you have for us. So thank you for that, Lord. Continue to help us to have the courage to take the sledgehammer and help along the process of taking down our towers 
of our own control and illusion of power so that we can see what it is that will take us into this new experience, this Pentecost experience. We want that, Lord. Thank you for your love and constancy, Father. Never let us forget. We can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Let's all stand.